From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. The story of where we live is uniquely personal. Many historic homes have been preserved and open to the public, places which tell a story about the way we once lived. However, American public housing, places built and maintained by governments, has been long overlooked, forgotten, or worse yet, maligned. Today's guest, Dr. Lisa Yoon Lee, is working to solve that gap in memory and understanding as the executive director of the National Public Housing Museum, the only cultural institution devoted to telling the story of public housing in the United States. Find the best spot to sit and relax in the place you call home as we talk about the history of housing on this week's PreserveCast. Hey, it's Nick here, and before we get started, I want to remind you briefly that your support makes this podcast possible. To keep hearing important stories like these, I hope you'll consider making a small contribution. This podcast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that believes we all succeed when we all know more, and your help will keep us on air. Thanks, and now let's get preserving. Dr. Lisa Yoon Lee is a cultural activist and the executive director of the National Public Housing Museum. She served as the director of the University of Illinois School of Art and Art History, where she's an associate professor of history and gender and women's studies. As the previous director of the Jane Addams Hull House Museum, she oversaw a renovation of the house, installed a new permanent exhibition, and reinvigorated public programming at one of our nation's most important historic sites. Lisa is also the co-founder of The Public Square at the Illinois Humanities Council, an organization dedicated to creating spaces for dialogue and dissent and for reinvigorating civil society. She writes broadly about arts, culture, diversity, and aesthetics and politics, and has published multiple books and studies. She serves on the board of the American Alliance of Museums, Imagining America, Artists and Scholars in Public Life, Three Arts, and the Rebuild Foundation. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we're joined in studio by Dr. Lisa Yoon Lee, who is a cultural activist and the executive director of the National Public Housing Museum. So excited to talk about the work that you're doing, um, which uh, is is so timely and so poignant right now. But before we get started, you had a really amazing career to this point. What was your path to this sort of work? And and I'm curious, what sparked your interest in, in history, preservation, museum studies? How did you get to where you are today? Thanks, Nick. Um, yeah, I always like to say that I have been very intellectually promiscuous. Um, and what I mean by that is just that I've fallen passionately in love with various disciplines on my sort of route to become a cultural activist and a museum professional and a preservationist. And so, you know, I sort of studied uh, religion uh, as an undergraduate at Bryn Mawr. It's where I then became, you know, a feminist. And then I went on to get a PhD in German critical thought at uh, Duke University. And then I started a nonprofit. Um, but it was really then at uh, the Jane Addams Hall House Museum, which was my first kind of gig at a historic house and a historic site that I really started to put everything together. The sort of critical feminist uh, work, sort of understanding like what it meant to um, sort of channel every single inch of, you know, your mind and body and soul into the work of social justice and social transformation, you know, but there isn't 
isn't really a day that goes by that I don't refer and think back to my Adorno, uh, my Theodore Adorno work. Um, he was a Jewish intellectual thinker that came to the United States during the Second World War, sort of forced into exile. And, you know, I like to bring him up because he's sort of seen as a pessimist and, you know, one of these really opaque thinkers. But for me, he's just somebody who's so relevant, who was forced to experience um, genocide, you know, of Jewish peoples in the United States. And so he had a really remarkable lens of sort of understanding the role that capitalism played, sort of, you know, what was sort of the importance of a vibrant democracy in a public sphere um, and, you know, how important those um, elements were in order for us to actually have a just world. And there was a really beautiful utopian thread in his thought and like believing in the best of humanity, even in the worst of times. And that's sort of what has really informed like the best in the belief in the best of humanity, which is what informs everything that I do. Yeah, which is really like, I mean, talk about believing in utopia in the middle of World War II when you've experienced the, you know, the genocide of your people. Um, I guess it, it, it sort of is a reminder that even in dark times that we're living through that it, it, it is good to hold on to that hope. Um, and it's it's interesting. I, lo- I love how you said that you, you've you led sort of this promiscuous intellectual career to this point. Um, I, I like that concept. And I think that that informs the work in, in a great way because, you know, you've blended social justice and museums and historic figures um, in a way that sometimes I think people are challenged with. So, you know, before we dive into the work of the National Public Housing Museum, um, I think it would be good because everybody comes to this podcast. Um, you know, we have listeners all across the country, all across the world, for that matter. Um, hello to the United Kingdom. Um, and um, I'm curious if you could define for us public housing and maybe set the stage for what it meant in America. So, you know, first examples where it's built, who lives there, um, and then maybe we'll talk about it today. But but what is what does public housing mean mean here in the United States? Um, Yeah, that's a really good question. And of course, there's myriad definitions. But I always like to start with what Dr. Larry Vale um, sort of says, which is the history of public housing is as much about the history of housing as it is about our relationship to the idea of the public, right? The idea of a commonwealth, a common good, a kind of sphere of like a rich democratic space where we are invested in one another's. Um, collective futures. And, you know, and it's really important to say that because it's not just about housing then, like the bricks and mortar. But, you know, sort of being more, like, less philosophical, one could say, and, if, you know, it's generally understood that the first public housing built in the United States was built during the WPA, the Works Projects Administration, during sort of uh, 1935. And that was Techwood Homes um, in Georgia. But that came before the so-called 1937 Housing Act, which established public housing as we know it today um, in the United States. And it was basically the government saying um, in the midst of the Great Depression, wow, we actually need a federal program to provide housing for all Americans and that housing is a critical 
a piece of the understanding of what it means to be a democracy. And it established a mechanism, which was basically public housing authorities in all you know 50 states in order for the government to help fund the building of housing. And so that was in 1937. And one thing I just want to put in there uh, as a feminist uh, and also as a justice activist is that, you know, I always quote John Berger and say, never again will a single story be told as if it's the only one. And um, the 1937 Housing Act was actually primarily drafted by Catherine Bauer Worcester, who's somebody who's sort of fallen out of the history books, but just a really critical figure um, in housing history in the United States. She was a Vassar graduate who then went to Europe and fell in love with social housing and, you know, Le Corbusier and, you know, all this sort of understanding of like, wow, um, housing should be a human right and that it's not something that the private marketplace can actually ever um, address adequately. And when she came back to the United States ever her, after her time in Europe, um, you know, she met with a group of amazing intellectuals and poets, but she ended up drafting the 1937 Housing Act. She was the head of research for the first U.S. government um, division of public housing. And then she ended up being the advisor to like three or four presidents on housing. She was called a houser, which is what people who really believe that housing should be a human right um, was back then. And I'll, I'm happy to say, that I've actually met a lot of housers today who have reclaimed that sort of moniker. Um, but, you know, that sort of uh, device that was set up in 1937 um, really created public housing in the United States. Um, and Lyndon B. Johnson, who was uh, a young congressman at that time uh, in Texas, he ended up being like the first congressperson to congressional representative to say, yes, I want a housing authority in the great state of Texas. And so um, Santa Rita Courts, which was created in uh, Austin, um, is one of those early housing complexes that was built by that money under that complex. And also one of their claim to fame is that the first public housing baby was born there, you know? <laughs> so so yeah, I love that kind of detail. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and I wonder where that child is today, if, she's, if he <laughs> yeah. or she is still with us. Um, so so you, you mentioned that, you know, kind of baked into that answer is that it's on all 50 states. Um what is the scale of this? How, how much of it was done? Is it still being done? And who lived there? Because I think that there's some preconceived notions about who lives in so-called public housing, which we're going to get into, you know, how that almost at some point became almost a derogatory term. But who 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 lived there? What's the scale of this? And what's the period of construction? So we know when it starts, is it still being built? And, and at what scale? Yeah, well, you just asked basically, you know, the billion dollar questions, literally. <laughs> um, and this is when the story really gets interesting. And, you know, I feel like one of the most important things as us to as we become fully human is to become curious, astute students of history. When I grew up in Poughkeepsie, my textbooks never had anything about Native American indigenous genocide or anything about the transatlantic slave trade, you know, and so there was large swaths of this history that was missing. And later on, you know, I realized, wow, you have to be like, not just a student of history, but you have to be very skeptical about what you read and know. And public housing is one of those like 
beasts, which has so many preconceived notions and stereotypes um, about you know what it is. And I want to talk to you a little bit about why we have those stereotypes. But really, when it was first started, public housing was considered for everyone. You know, it's just like in this, this moment when we are asked to shelter at home and people are asking, wow, like what does it mean for people who actually don't have a home or experiencing homelessness? You know, like how do we actually live? And the importance of home is coming to the fore. Of course, back in 1937, that was one of the biggest issues because of the depression and people and the joblessness that was, um, you know, a, a remarkable rate. And so um, at that time, really public housing was created for everyone. Now, uh, Richard Rothstein, in his very, very important book, The Color of Law, um, has done just important work for us to understand that um, from jump, from the very beginning, public housing, even though it was created with the best of intentions for all people, um, you know, it was we were living in a racist society. And in order for the WPA to pass the idea of housing and had to do a lot of appeasement with um, sort of southern states and other, you know, racist congressional members. And they had to put in sort of neighborhood composition rule, which was something that Harold Ickes had sort of set up when he was the head of the Department of Interior to actually create housing that was segregated because people did not want housing that was really for everyone, that everyone would live together, right? And so even when I sort of mentioned the Techwood homes, you know, it was created for white families, but in order to build it, they had to actually get rid of, you know, um, thousands of African-American people and families who were living there. And when um, housing was created, so for, I'll just jump to the place that I'm working at most closely with Jane Addams Homes that was, you know, created in 1938. Um, you know, they set aside two buildings that were for African-Americans and then the rest of the buildings were for so who was considered white at that time. And so um, right from the beginning, public housing was also a segregated housing space, but it was for everyone. It was primarily actually so-called white people um, and new immigrants who lived in public housing. There's There was a large demographic of Jewish families who lived in public housing in the 1930s and 40s because there was so much migration from Europe and there was so much need for housing. Um, and so, uh, you know, in the Public Housing Museum's oral history archive, when we interview early public housing residents, um, there's one family member who, when you said, what does public housing mean to you and how do you understand it? And she said, well, it was actually a place where I could have my first kosher kitchen because it was a place that was built and it didn't have, no, nobody had ever cooked pork or anything in that space, you know? And so, like, that's what public housing meant. Um, now, before I, like, go down too much of a long road, I want to say that, you know, different federal policies um, in the 40s and the 50s um, and then leading in the 60s and 70s even, you know, ended up, um, because of our deeply racialized history, um, creating you know, spaces that were became primarily African-American spaces because of the racism in our country. So, for example, um, the FHA uh, had a process of redlining, which stopped African-Americans from getting mortgages and buying homes in certain places. And so 
white folk who were living in public housing ended up getting mortgages and moving out of public housing and African-Americans, you know, couldn't find a mortgage, couldn't buy a house in certain neighborhoods. And so they ended up staying. Um, another really great example of this is that when the GI Bill was passed in the United States, there was a big debate about whether the United States should build more housing, public housing for returning soldiers, or if the government should offer cheap mortgages for soldiers. And the real estate industry, of course, advocated for cheap mortgages. And so when GIs returned, they offered really cheap mortgages to GIs, but it was for white GIs primarily. The African-American I those mortgages from banks because of racist policies. And so African-American GIs, you know, ended up in public housing with their families, but white GIs ended up getting uh, mortgages and moving into homes, right? And so you can sort of see there's a moment where public housing is for everybody and it's slow, it's multiracial, multi-ethnic, um, and also in fact, like multi-demographics of class, right? Because it was for working class people and it was for working poor, but also people who were, you know, actually they both were working and their families and um, bringing in income, but different federal policies ended up um, making this a different racial demographic and also making it for the poorest of the poor. And it really, dramatically changed the demographic of public housing. Right. I mean, even to this day, we obviously, you know, concentrations of poverty are not a good thing, right? Where you have one just group of, of people, all of, you know, extreme concentration of poverty, we know um, creates a lot of, a lot of problems. Um, and I think that perhaps that's kind of baked into what a lot of people perceive public housing. But obviously, as you kind of laid out, it didn't happen by accident. Um, and no. I and I think that 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 that's where maybe some of the understanding is 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 confused or or is otherwise lost. But you know we honor, we commemorate, we preserve all different types of housing. Um, but we've struggled with preserving public housing. You know I'm from Buffalo, New York, and I know the folks up there at Preservation Buffalo Niagara are trying to save some really important public housing um, that is even architecturally and artistically significant. But it, it's a it's an uphill battle. So why when why has it been so difficult to preserve this stuff? And when did opinions really begin to shift? Is it is it when it becomes so concentrated and when when um, white communities start moving out and getting those mortgages? Is that when the 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 opinions shift? Or you know what 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 happened there? Yeah. I mean, one quick thing I'd like to say is it depends also on whose opinion sure. you're asking for, right? Because in many ways, um, I'll just say, even on the, my own board of the National Public Housing Museum, there might be one person who is white, um, you know, has never lived in public housing and would say very like innocently even, well, somebody might be ashamed that they grew up in public housing, so why would they say it? And every single public housing resident alum would say, what? No one is ashamed of <laughs> the fact that they grew up in public housing. And we sort of see um, even people, you know, who so-called made it in the United States, like Howard Schultz and other people, Right. Um, you know, the CEO of Starbucks, you know, is very proud of the fact that they lived in public housing. And so there's and there's a kind of public housing pride because the people who live in public housing actually have a very different experience. They sort of are not sort of uh, thinking about this 
you know, necessarily the sort of mainstream media's representation, but for them, it's about the vibrant communities that they've created, their family members, the resilience, the sort of innovative businesses, the sort of cookouts, the, you know, the backyard barbecues, the sort of sports. And, you know, so there's a very different experience. Um, I would say that, yeah, there's like many different moments that one could point to, but like history, it's not just one particular moment, right? But oftentimes in public housing history, um, you think about the sort of Ronald Reagan era and um, all of a sudden when he coins this term welfare queen, right, at a press conference, which creates this idea of a black woman who's living large, you know, off of, you know, society and it becomes sort of the demonization of this idea of welfare, which I always say as a good progressive and somebody who's a student of the Jane Addams era, you know, sort of the idea of welfare, which was the public good public health, this idea that we're all doing well, which was born out of the progressive era, um, in just two short generations, you know, when the point when all of a sudden Reagan comes in and starts to demonize it, um, you know, it's like welfare should be a good a, a good thing and something that we all strive for, right? But, you know, welfare gets demonized and this idea that people should not be living off of the public um, sort of uh, welfare is part of the problem of what, what how people understand public housing. Um, there's also, you know, sort of the war on drugs and also the sort of policing of African-American men and women that happens in the 80s, so the 90s, which then, you know, up to now, obviously, which then really informs the idea of us sort of having us living in this carceral state and then public housing becoming one of those spaces that is the most heavily surveilled, but also the least safe kind of places in America. And that leads also to the demonization of public housing spaces as unsafe. And, on, and then the last thing I'll say is, um, there is, because of urban renewal processes, a defunding of uh, public housing buildings and their maintenance, um, which ends up really with crumbling buildings, you know, sort of elevators that don't work, um, you know, bricks and there's you know, leaking and all of these and paint peeling and that sort of defunding of maintenance then also and that all this building needs to take down and sort of destroyed and so um, you know but you know I, one thing I really want to say is oftentimes uh, people when they think of public housing they think of high rises and especially in Chicago there's like this idea that well of course public housing has failed and needs to be destroyed and dismantled because these high rises were so terrible. But, you know, not all public housing is high rises. And also, if you flip the script and you think about the sort of most luxurious apartments that are being built um, in metropolises today, which are actually are high rises, you sort of have to ask, like, why are high rises only effective if you're wealthy and white and not if you are, you know, living in public housing. So there's nothing inherently wrong with a high rise. Right. Um, and so, yeah. Interesting. To do with the there's yeah. a, there's a lot, a lot baked into the understanding. And I, and I think even the way I pose the question, um, obviously I come with my own, my own baggage and, and the way I perceive it. And I didn't grow up in public housing. And so I, I guess I asked it like that, 
well-meaning but misinformed board member that you you described. Um, but it's helpful to hear this and and to be challenged on that. So let's take a quick break here. Um, we're going to hear from our pop-up podcast, The Ballot and Beyond, Women's Suffrage Moment here, and we'll come right back and talk more about the National Public Housing Museum right here on PreserveCast. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avilius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit ballotandbeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about poet Lucille Clifton, a professor and poet laureate of the state of Maryland for two terms in the 70s and 80s. Read by Jessica Felt, Preservation Initiatives Manager at Preservation Maryland. Lucille Clifton. Poet Lucille Clifton started writing as a child. She would then write her way to be the state poet laureate. In 1967, Clifton moved to Baltimore with her husband and children for work. Lucille wrote at their kitchen table, she sent some of her poems to poet Robert Hayden asking for help in getting published. Hayden passed Clifton's poems on to a fellow poet who liked them enough to submit them to a competition without telling her. She won, and the award caught the attention of a major publishing house and landed her a contract. Clifton wasted no time publishing her debut volume of poetry, Good Times, in 1969. As she would throughout her career, Clifton wrote of the African-American experience and the human capacity to endure and preserve. The New York Times named Good Times as one of the 10 most notable books of the year. In 1971, she joined what was then Coppin State College in West Baltimore as Poet-in-Residence. Her works Good News and the Earth came out in 1972, An Ordinary Woman in 1974, Two-Headed Woman in 1980, in 1987, she produced two volumes, Good Woman and Next. The Pulitzer Prize Committee named both books as finalists, the first time one author had two books on the list in the same year. She wrote more than a dozen collections of poetry, nearly two dozen children's books, and a memoir. She received the National Book Award for her collection, Blessing the Boats, New and Collected Poems, and the Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize for her full body of work. Literary critic Helen Vendler said, she recalls for us those bare places we have all waited as ordinary women with no choices but yes or no. No art, no grace, no words, no reprieve. In 1979, Clifton was appointed the state's poet laureate for two terms, six years. When she was asked about composing poems on demand for state events, Clifton replied that, you don't go around asking poets to write verse on request. That's not poetry. That's greeting cards. Clifton would become a longtime distinguished professor of humanities at St. Mary's College in Southern Maryland. She died in 2010 at the age of 73. Of her own life, Clifton wrote, won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? 
I had no model. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're joined by Dr. Lisa Yun-Lee, and we are talking all about public housing. We've been talking about the history of it and sort of the context of it, um, where it was built, why it was built, um, some of the preconceived notions, the stereotypes, the misunderstandings about it, why it's been so difficult um, uh, to preserve it, to maintain it, um, to build more of it. And I guess this is a good place to maybe shift over to your work at the National Public Housing Museum, which is helping to to really change this narrative, um, preserve the stories of these places. Let's talk about uh, the museum. What's the origin story? And I I guess maybe a bigger picture question. What's the goal? Yeah, um, you know, it's just such a gift to be working at this historic site right now. And... um, the really important thing to say about uh, both the origin and also sort of the mission, vision, and values is that um, we're dedicated to preserving this historic space, which is the 1938 um, public housing complex of the Jane Addams homes on the near west side of Chicago. But the mission, vision, and values is not just to preserve and not just to interpret public housing, but also to propel housing as a human right and pro- to propel the right of all people to a place called home. And that is really important. We are a site of conscience, which is a network of historic sites across the globe that really believes that in order to preserve history or preserve buildings, you have to make it relevant to contemporary social justice issues. And that you cannot solve and address any contemporary social issue without actually looking back and asking, what have we not yet learned from history and what do we need to learn for our collective future? So that's really important. And the origin story of the Public Housing Museum is that in the wake of the plan for transformation, which was part of the Hope Six uh, project in Chicago to basically remake and reimagine public housing because of the concentrated poverty and the segregation that existed because of the crumbling and unsafe buildings to actually um, sort of rethink housing, public housing and remake it and transform it for the next generation, um, a group of public housing residents came together and said, wow, we actually need to preserve one of the last remaining buildings and create a museum where we can actually control the narrative about what it meant to live in, be, live in public housing and also to make sure that it's not just the mainstream um, sort of narrative about public housing that's preserved, but that we can ask all of these critical questions. Um, and I just want to say that, you know, the plan for transformation, which is, you know, an urban renewal project to remake the city of Chicago um, is happening, you know, all across this country. And one of the first things that happened in these urban renewal projects was the dismantling of these high rises and public housing spaces, which represented the single greatest net loss of housing in the United States history. So in the effort to remake housing and to reimagine and affordable housing in this country, 
century, these urban renewal strategies actually um, dismantled public housing and it represented the single greatest net loss of housing in the United States history. So that is a contradiction that we are still going to have to grapple with, you know, long into our futures. Um, but it was at that moment, you know, of the plan for transformation, when people were seeing the landscape, you know, visually reformed and, you know, their, their homes being destroyed, that a group of residents came together with preservationists, with scholars, um, with advocates to say, hey, we actually need a public housing museum. Now, at that time, which was in, I think, you know, the early, basically now it's been around 10 years, so like 2008, 2009, when they started talking about this, they had gone to the head of the Driehaus um, Foundation, who was a Sunny Fisher at that time, and she's a preservationist and also um, a philanthropist and a feminist and you know a rabble rouser in general, and said, "Hey, we would like to actually create maybe a public housing museum." And Sunny Fisher, who said wow, this is a great idea. Um, and it turns out that Sunny, who's now also our board chair, grew up in public housing in the East Chester projects. And um, yeah, and she was also happened to be great friends with Ruth Abram, who is the founder of the Tenement Museum and also the founder of the Sites of Conscience. And so a group of residents went with preservationists and activists to go see the Tenement Museum in the Lower East Side of New York. They were like, wow, this is a really fascinating idea. And that's when the kernel sort of started. And I have to say that um, as a museum professional, it is like the dreamiest of dreams that the founding of an institution includes the stakeholders um, that are as broad and diverse as the public housing museum. Um, so that, you know, in this work of this 21st century museums, which is to decolonize museums, make them more diverse, accessible, um, and reflective of the community like the public housing museums kernel and beginnings were actually that yeah it's it it it, it sort of flips the script um in a really good way um and, it, and it's interesting to hear the connection too to the tenement museum um which in and of itself is a really unique and important place and and love to see that it, it kind of it's so interesting that historically it precedes, you know, the history of public housing, and then it also precedes and gives birth to the public housing museum. Um, I mean, not completely gives birth, but but at least informs it, and that that's really interesting. So beyond the walls of the museum, what to do with current and former public public housing sites? Now, obviously, you've made a really compelling case for not only keeping um, existing public housing, but caring for it and expanding it, and a part of the just the broader housing crisis. Um, that's important and an imperative. But there's often an opposition to preservation. Um, How do you feel that conversation should shift? I mean, you know, just singling out what's going on in Buffalo because I'm aware of it. How do, you know, how should preservationists frame that conversation when there's an important, not only important to the social history of the country, but important architecturally, just like any other um, period of, of, or, and, and, uh, fabric of of history so what's what's that conversation look like what should it look like right well one thing that is important to underscore is that the field of preservation 
is not immune to the sort of sexist, classist, and racist history that our entire United States, you know, is actually under and, you know, needs to be reformed in many ways and, you know, radically reimagined. Um, you know, one can sort of note that and you often hear this statistic that there are more historic house museums in the United States than McDonald's and Burger King's combined, right? And, but when one sort of looks at what historic homes had been preserved, it's mostly houses of wealthy white men who, quote unquote, accomplished great things for the United States, right? And the Public Housing Museum, I see it as a house museum. It just happens to be the sort of house of, you know, tens of thousands um, in our particular space and ultimately public housing across the United States, you know, millions of so-called everyday people who actually also lived extraordinary lives. And so one of the things that we need to ask ourselves as preservationists is, you know, what do we consider important enough to preserve, whose stories are valued, and in order for us to have a much more inclusive and diverse foundation for our nation's stories, um, in order for us to create more justice, we're going to need to change the kinds of spaces that we preserve. We're going to actually need to have a much more vibrant and inclusive conversation about what are the places that we preserve, whose stories actually matter. Um, and I'm not the first person to obviously bring this up. One reads the brilliant work of Dolores Hayden in The Power of Place. You know, she argues that we need to be not just thinking about bricks and mortar in preservation, but also include a commitment to urban stories and also cultural history. And so, like, important history in there, then maybe that place is valuable to be preserved. And one needs to interrogate what we define as important, which, you know, up to now has been a seriously myopic definition of mostly white male history um, that is decided by the people in power that this is actually important. And so the struggle to preserve public housing sites is along with a sort of people's struggle to really demand that, um, you know, who are the people that matter in our society and our stories are actually important and need to be preserved as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously, um, you know, I, I think, you're you're making a really compelling case, and and I think others have, as as you've mentioned, that that, that this, this needs to happen. And unfortunately, there I mean there are bright spots out there where there is a there is a big shift underway. Um, but there's you know, obviously a lot more that can be done. Um, and when it comes to public housing sites, um, a lot lot more that can be done. Now there, I, I'm curious. So obviously, your work preserves a a public housing site. I'm curious if you could explain to people how that actually works when you said there's you know, potential for, you know, you're telling the stories of thousands of units. How much ground do you actually cover? How have you preserved the sites themselves? And and sort of a bigger question is, are there more places like this around the country? I mean, obviously you're the national museum, but are there other places that have preserved public housing? 
Yeah. Um, well, one thing that I would say is that, you know, one of the reasons that I love preservation so much is that, you know, every inch of a building has an extraordinary story that could be conveyed if we look at it and ask the right questions. Right. So, um, I think up to now, a lot of buildings that have been preserved have been defined as if the was a valuable architect or if it has architectural significance or if the people who lived there had made great contributions to our society. Um, and one might look at, for example, um, the wood that goes into a building or the brick that was laid in the foundation and ask the question, hmm, who actually laid that brick, right? And if for the 19, you know, my particular building of the Jane Addams homes um, during that was built during the WPA, and you look back at the video footage, look back at the records of who was paid, you see like extraordinary stories of Italian stone cutters who participated in the making of the building, um, you know, sort of the different Irish and Polish bricklayers. And, you know, each of those stories is a story that's important to tell. Um, and each of those intimate local stories opens up into a larger national story about, for example, the history of immigration, or even for that matter, you know, like where did this wood come from and where, what is it shipped from, you know? And so it's really important for me to really sort of look at the building with as in much intensity and um, passion as, you know, I possibly can and to sort of bring in all of those stories. Um, the museum is structured to be a national museum, as you mentioned. And so there's going to be three restored apartments that is based on the oral histories of families who live there. Um, and like I said, those intimate stories open up to larger national narratives that are much more inclusive. So for example, um, the like I said, the first apartment tells a Jewish history of both um, the Inez and Turvitz uh, Metter family, but also, you know, it tells the history of Maxwell Street in Chicago and also opens up to a larger narrative about Jewish life um, in the United States um, as well as the birth of public housing. The second apartment tells the story of, um, of the Rizzi family, an Italian family, the Podlowskis, uh, uh, Polish family, um, and also we're looking into a Puerto Rican family who lived at the Jane Addams homes at that time. But it also tell the history of redlining that was taking place in that moment, and you know what did it mean to actually be poor um, in America um, at that time, and who was you know sort of able to leave public housing, who actually ended up staying in public housing. And the third restored apartment is that of Reverend Marshall Hatch's family, an African-American family, which you know is just in itself like just such a fascinating uh, story because he is also one of the you know preeminent social justice you know organizers in Chicago today. But also it tells the story of Martin Luther King coming to Chicago during the Chicago Freedom um, Movement. And, you know, I love to tell the story because um, the family's mother was so committed to education and wouldn't let them have a television. But then when Martin Luther King came to Chicago, they were allowed to get a TV and, you know, they were only allowed to watch television when Martin Luther King was on television. Um, and so in that family apartment, for example, we'll have, you know, the Hatch 
family television, but it'll be also playing all the incredible stories of King in Chicago working for um, housing and working against segregation. Um, but that really is only a very small part of the museum because um, those that historic part of the building, which will include sort of tours by public housing residents um, that give you an intimate glimpse into people's lived experiences. There's also, for example, Emory, which is um, committed to everyday stories of public housing residents that we're going to be collecting from across the country. Um, and the labels themselves will be written by public housing residents. And we had had a pilot of this project with an exhibit called um, History Lessons that was just so beautiful. And, you know, people giving us um, a Pyrex dish or an old garden hose. And you realize that those material objects just tell the most poetic histories and stories about public housing that would challenge, you know, Richard Rothstein or Matthew Desmond or Mary Patillo, like great scholars, but who, you know, these objects actually do that work of explaining the history of public housing and how it came to be and, you know, what are some of the problems. And we, of, we often say that we're telling the good, the bad and the ugly of public housing in the museum. So it's not just a nostalgic, you know, reminiscing. Um, and another one of our board members, Francine Washington, says, yeah, we have to be committed to telling the story of our in-laws, but also the story of our outlaws. <laughs> um, and <laughs> one thing else I can say, I know, I love her. Um, and then the other thing I want to say is like the museum is committed. My own background is much more also in sort of contemporary art. And so there's like a beautiful engagement with art, which I think unleashes our radical imaginations. And so our entrance way is going to be designed by Amanda Williams and Oleg Jeffus, who are great um, art activists and um, architects who, um, you know, they were just identified as the two uh, artists who designed the Shirley Chisholm Monument in New York. We're going to be working with Manual Cinema, a really great spectral puppetry group who's doing a piece in a historic staircase. Um, and there's also a commitment to display contemporary art um, like that of um, Robert Nathan Nathaniel Mary Quinn, um, who's a great painter um, who will be in our gallery when we first open, um, along with these beautiful Edgar Miller statues that were part of the built environment when the museum, when the housing complex first opened, but will now be re reinstalled in the museum. Um, yeah, and I mean, there's just so much more that I really, like, it's hard to explain, but what how we're envisioning the museum is really as a 21st century a cultural institution that is going to be an anchor in the community um, and really challenge our notions of not just what historic preservation looks like, but also, you know, what a museum can and should be um, in uh, a community and community broadly defined because as you mentioned, public housing residents um, span, you know, have been dispersed or living sort of in a diaspora also across the United States now. Um, yeah. So if people want to learn more about the National Public Housing Museum, because as you mentioned, um, there's a lot more to dig into, um, where, where can they find you? Um, and, uh, you know, that, that would be a great place to give us a plug here. Right. So first of all, you should check out our website, which is mphm.org. Um, we have a vibrant public 
programming series, which is national also because it's built upon one hour oral history archive. Um, you know, traditional written history has been very limited. And so we've sort of committed to uh, the great traditions of Studs Terkel and Timuel Black and Ida B. Wells Barnett, you know, really sort of taking down the stories of people orally and putting them into oral history archive. And we have a series called Out of the Archives, um, which is a monthly series that premieres on Facebook, but then you can find online, um, which is a curated series of stories about uh, public housing residents that run the gamut of sports and public housing and, you know, sort of musicians in public housing to black power and, um, you know, a whole range of political issues as well. Um, and we also have an entrepreneurship hub, which we have launched, which is part of our cultural workforce training program. And so we are also hiring people to be oral historians um, that to record the stories of public public housing residents across the country um, and also starting to gather artifacts. Um, we're right now in the midst of a campaign to actually open in the last remaining building. We're operating fully as a museum, but we're trying to get into the Jane Adams homes and actually uh, open up the museum and hopefully happen in 21, 22. And so if people are interested, they can come to our website. It's the Power of Place campaign. And, um, you know, I hope as many people as possible will join us. Fantastic. Well, um, lots more to dig into there and a lot of food for thought from the conversation, just really compelling stuff and uh, an important um, new avenue um, in preservation and um, in museums and uh, a lot for people to think about. So before you go, the most difficult question we normally ask folks, which is your favorite historic place or site? Yes. <laughs> I love that question. Well, one, I have to say that, you know, very selfishly, I have to say, I love the Jane Addams Hall House Museum, um, which is located on the University of Illinois at Chicago campus on Halstead Street. And that's, it's probably also not just because I work there, but it's the space that actually opened my eyes to like the potential of a historic site, like how many stories can be told and learned from one, the power of place and of memory. Um, and I love um, that historic house. But I would also say that, um, you know, just driving uh, to Providence, you know, in the last couple of weeks, I was on, you know, a, a highway in Ohio and I, you know, came across this, um, highway rest stop, which happened to be a site of the historic Underground Railroad. And just pausing and re reading the historic label, I learned so much about, you know, the history of um, slavery in the United States and, you know, what it meant for people living in the North that were part of the Underground Railroad. And, you know, I, I feel like for me, um, like it's these happenstance spaces that I come across that uh, where you learn a story that you've never even thought about, which is the thing that's so special. Um, one last thing, I grew up in Poughkeepsie and there's just, we're surrounded by historic houses there. And so recently I went to the Eleanor Roosevelt house also there. And it was just so wonderful to sort of see um, her house preserved and, you know, being held as important as FDR and other, um, you know, other presidents. And so I sort of like the, 
quirky historic sites that tell the stories of women or people of color, people who we don't usually um, think of as being the great Americans who contributed to the United States, but realizing how much, you know, these people have actually contributed. And so, um, yeah, that's my, those are my favorites. Well, a, a fantastic way to end a really great interview and, and so excited to hear more about the museum um, as it all comes together. And I know you're operating as a museum, but to see your opening in, in hopefully 21 or 22, um, hopefully we can get you back on and talk more about it. Um, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Nick, for all the work that you do, which is so important. I really love being here. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.